This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Carl Ulrich. Welcome back to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich. I'm the Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, where I teach entrepreneurship, innovation, and product design. I'm very happy to welcome to the show my next guest, Dilip Goswami, who's the co-founder and CEO at Molecule. Dilip, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show, Carl. So first things first, let's point our listeners to your website. It's Molecule.com, but it's got a tricky spelling. So it's M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E. So M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E.com. All right, Dilip, give us the elevator pitch for Molecule. Yeah, so Molecule is a brand new kind of air purifier that actually destroys the pollutants in the air as opposed to trying to collect them in filters. And, uh, and because we're able to destroy these pollutants, we're able to uh, benefit people in ways that other air purifiers just can't. All right. So let's start with, what, with, with the air and what's in the air. So tell us a little bit about the composition of particles and pollutants in, in air. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So there's a couple of different types of pollutants uh, that you typically see in the air, and especially in indoor air, which is um, where our air purifier is focused at. Um, so there's uh, there's a range of pollutants that are called bioaerosols, and that means that they're biological in origin, right? So things like mold spores, uh, bacteria, viruses. Uh, these, you know, that that's one category of pollutants that you see. Um, then there's out your typical allergens. So whether that be pollen, pet dander, um, dust mite allergen, there's a range of those. And uh, and then there's uh, the very smallest category of pollutants, which are these uh, chemical gases, typic- the most typical of which are known as VOCs or volatile organic compounds. And these are gases that get emitted by building materials or cleaning agents, um, almost anything that's manufactured in the, in the modern era, when you bring it inside, it'll outgas uh, these types of pollutants. So, so there's a range of, of different types of pollutants, and they all behave uh, very, very differently from each other. Um, you know, you can imagine how, how a mold spore behaves, right? It can, it'll grow and multiply uh, in that indoor environment, whereas the VOCs will behave very, very differently. They're very small, and they'll diffuse into kind of every part of the room and, uh, and kind of at a constant concentration across the air. Okay, and then as someone who's relatively new to this space, I have seen recently when the air gets polluted, you'll see advisories or say when you're traveling in China, you'll get advisories about uh, the PM 2.5, something like that. This is typical air quality measure. Those particles are of what type? Uh, so there, when we, when you talk about uh, PM 2.5, what that means is it's particulate matter that's below a certain size, 2.5 mm-hmm. microns in size. And so, and all of these are smaller than that, right? Yes. The ones you're yeah, talking well, about, no, yeah. No, some of them, some of the ones that I'm talking about are larger, right? So mold could be a hundred microns in size. Ah. It's actually, you know, it's actually quite large. Um, and so, but but they're, they all have, they're all very problematic in their behavior. Um, but to to address the point about PM two point five, 
um, you know, the type of particles that you're getting are particles that are basically, you know, either coming out of smokestacks, so for example, coal power plants, or uh, or coming out of the tailpipes of cars, right? So it's basically you're burning these hydrocarbons. Mm-hmm. And what you get is actually the majority of that pollutant is actually gaseous in nature. So mm-hmm. it's similar to the VOCs that I was talking about indoors. And then you also get some particulate, but... Um, you know, typically people think of PM2.5 or particulate as dust. Mm-hmm. And actually less than 10% of PM2.5, if you measure across Beijing, Shanghai, uh, is uh, less, less than 10% of it is actually dust. Mm-hmm. It's actually more of these uh, organic compounds uh, that you see out there in the air. And that's just because of the nature of what you're burning. All right. And, and so now that we have a little primer on what's in the air, uh, does molecule tackle all of these types of pollutants or just some of them? Yeah, so so we tackle that whole range of pollutants. And mm-hmm. there's a reason why I kind of separated them into different categories because, you know, this is, you know, molecule actually came out of, uh, you know, problems that I faced in my life. I was, you know, grew up with asthma and allergies. And so all these different types of pollutants are things that can make somebody like me quite sick and, and pretty quickly. You know, we have very acute sensitivity to what's in the air. And so, you know, when you have, let's say, a typical filter, um, it'll, you know, what, what the filter is really good at is capturing things like dust. Mm-hmm. I mean, HEPA filters that we use today were invented back in the 1940s, and they were invented to capture dust as, as part of the Manhattan Project. And uh, and they were never really intended to deal with the rain, these, this whole range of pollutants, right? So mold, for example, could can actually grow on a HEPA filter mm. to the point where that HEPA filter becomes now the source of, of the mold, right? So um, and and mold is one of the larger ones, so it'll get captured on that filter. But then when we talk about PM2.5 and we talk about, okay, well, a lot of this is from combustion of fuels and it's, it's these organic compounds, uh, that's stuff that a HEPA filter can't actually capture. And, and that's why we had to take a different approach of actually um, using a, uh, a chemical process to actually destroy these pollutants, right? So the mold doesn't grow on our filter because it's getting broken down and destroyed. In the same way, we don't have to worry about the size of a particle. We can work down to the very smallest because we're not trying to capture them. We're actually using a chemical reaction to break them down and break those molecular bonds to destroy them. Yeah. And so, so that's how we're able to work on, because we work on the chemical nature, we work across that whole range of pollutants. All right. Well, we're going to get to how it works, but I got one more, one more nerdy question for you. So it, 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 you know, I've read just casually some concerns that, that children are not being exposed to enough allergens. And so Mm -hmm. I, I, I totally get that if you are asthmatic or have some condition makes you particularly sensitive to allergens and to, and to pollutants, it, it, it's a problem, but for the public at large, how big a deal is this? Yeah, so it's actually incredibly important for the public at large, right? So let's let's go back to the point that you made about not being exposed to enough allergens, right? Um, if you look at if you look at the ideal exposure of allergens, um, I think when you know when some of these studies have been conducted, they concluded that uh, that children uh, living in the Swiss countryside have the ideal exposure because they're exposed to a lot of farm animals, so they're getting a lot of allergens from there, but you know, the, 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 the concentrated point is that they're also outdoors a lot and they're being and they have, you know, 
really fantastic air quality where they live. Yeah. Um, in contrast, when you're living, let's say, for example, in an urban environment, you're in these enclosed buildings that we, you know, for good reasons, we're trying to close them up more and more so that there's less draft because we want to spend less energy to heat and cool them. Mm-hmm. But that means that we're not getting as much of an exposure to that fresh air. And so, you know, molecule is not something that's going to sterilize your room so that you have no exposure at all to the allergens. What it's going to do is it's going to bring, the, bring that concentration down to a reasonable level uh, so that you're getting a good exposure, not something that's going to cause more problems uh, for you in the future. So, you know, I, 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 I think the point about um, making sure that you expose kids to a variety of things is, is really important. Uh, but, mo- but the problem that Molecule is trying to solve is different. It's that we have very high concentrations in some of these indoor environments, and we want to bring them down to the level that you could get, you know, breathing in that nice Swiss countryside. Yeah. All right. So tell us how Molecule takes my polluted air and makes it into the Swiss countryside. And and maybe give us a sense of what the device actually looks like and then how it works. Sure, absolutely. So um, so I'll start with the device. It's about uh, 22 inches tall, and it's uh, formed from an extruded aluminum shell. So there's a nice aluminum shell that's, uh, that's anodized light silver color. Um, there's a, uh, a handle. Uh, to the device so that you can move it around. And at the top, there's a display, that a touch display that allows you to control the device. Um, down at the bottom, there's a 360-degree air intake that pulls the air into the device, and that's where our technology starts to work. So <clears throat> there's also an initial, as the air gets pulled in, there's an initial pre-filter that captures all the big stuff, right? So, mm-hmm. for example, if you have pets, there's a lot of pet hair floating around in the air. That all gets sucked up and caught on the, that pre-filter. Um, and, then, and then the fan pulls the air through the pre-filter and pushes it out through uh, what's called the PICO filter. And PICO is what our technology is called, P-E-C-O, mm-hmm. or photoelectrochemical oxidation. Now, that's a mouthful, but um, what it means is that we have a process by which we shine light onto a specially coated filter media. Um, and when that coating on that filter media sees light, it generates a chemical reaction that enables us to destroy those pollutants. So, um, you know, we're doing this chemical oxidation reaction that breaks down those allergens, mold, bacteria, viruses, airborne chemicals um, down at the very, very fundamental level. And, uh, and you know, then the air exits the device through, uh, through the top, and we've got a... Uh, uh, sort of a, a, a set of veins on the top that are angled to make sure that when the air comes out, it swirls a bit, so it promotes mixing in the room. So we're getting yeah. good coverage kind of across across a whole room. All right. So is are the particles themselves being oxidized, or are they collateral damage uh, for an oxidation reaction that's happening on a substrate of some kind? No, so the particles themselves, in fact, everything for the oxidation reaction is already present in the air, right? So there's some amount of humidity. There's some amount of humidity from the air, and the Mm. water in the air becomes our oxidizing agent, and the pollutants that are there in the air react with that and get broken down. Uh, what our what our device does is it provides the, provides some energy impetus for that reaction um, through the light, and mm-hmm. the coating itself is a catalyst. So it facilitates that reaction. Got it. I mean, essentially, you know, these pollutants in nature, they're going to get oxidized and destroyed over time 
as it is, right? Mm-hmm. But the rate that is happening in our homes is not enough to keep up with the amount of pollutant that we've got in there. So in our device, we catalyze that. We make it go faster and much, much more, uh, many orders of magnitude more efficient so that you know, can actually destroy all those pollutants. But yeah. everything for the reaction is already in the air. Cool. All right. So this is a this is a device that is is intended to be used by consumers in their homes. What what do they what do they pay for it? And is there a recurring is there a recurring is there a consumable in the form of the catalyst? That's right. So um, so our device costs eight hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can get it on our website, and uh, and there's a filter subscription that comes along with it. So one of the things that we saw when we were looking at how people use air purifiers is that, you know, it's a pity that people typically don't replace their filters. And that's because it's kind of a pain to replace your filters. You know, you have to think about, okay, do I go to Home Depot? Where do I go to buy this filter? Um, and, and when do I need to replace it? These can be issues, right? So with our device comes with a $129 a year filter subscription, mm-hmm. where if you're signed up, uh, you get all your filter replacements on a schedule, and you get notified when you need to change your filters. So for the pre-filter, that's three to- or rather four times a year. Um, so once every three months, you change the pre-filter. And then the Pico filter gets changed once every six months. So, uh, so, so yeah, I mean, the, the, the filters, changing the filters is, is incredibly important because that's how, you know, you get the ongoing value from the, from the device. Is you're continuing to get clean air because you're, you're changing those things, and uh, that's what allows it to keep operating at its peak efficiency. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Carl Ulrich, and I'm speaking with Dilip Goswami, who's the co-founder and CEO of Molecule. And I'm going to spell the brand name again so you can reference the website, M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E, Molecule.com. So, Dilip, you alluded to to you having uh, asthma and being sensitive to allergens and pollutants. But tell us more completely the origin story. Where did this business come from? Sure, absolutely. So, um, you know, it's funny when, when people ask me that, uh, you're, we're literally starting at the beginning of my life, right? So oh, wow. I, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I was born with asthma and allergies, and, uh, and it's been a continuous problem for me as a child. And, uh, and not, just be, not just myself, but my family, right? My parents, um, you're taking, it's actually, you know, especially becoming an adult at this perspective, it's actually quite scary to take care of, of a child and seeing them to struggle to breathe, and you can imagine, as, as most parents would, um, my parents looked for kind of every solution under the sun, and uh, and you know we tried sort of everything medical, all kinds of folk remedies, um, everything that we could, and ultimately my father had a realization, which was that you know I have food allergies as well, for example, but it's easy for me to avoid peanuts, right? I can make mm-hmm. sure that they're not in my food. But the problem with um, with the triggers for my asthma was that the pollutants in the air were very difficult uh, to avoid. And so, um, you know, he actually used his background. He was a renowned solar scientist. Uh, at that time, he was a, a professor at the University of Florida. Hmm. And, uh, and he started looking at, you know, what are technologies that we could use to try to actually get rid of these pollutants that are triggering my asthma and allergies. 
And so um, at the time he was actually working on, this is quite interesting, but he was working on a, a solar water purification technology uh, that was deployed, being deployed by the Department of Defense at the Tyndall Air Force Base to clean up uh, contaminated groundwater. Hmm. And he saw that the principles of that could be applied for air purification. And so that led him on, you know, a, a 20 year journey. I mean, over the next 25 years, he continuously researched and developed in that area. And he ended up developing the technology that came to be known as PICO. About, uh, about 10 years ago, I actually, um, you know, my initial background, uh, you know, academically and then wor- and work was in, uh, you know, machine learning and, and, and that kind of thing. And I decided to actually go back to school because I wanted to work on things, you know, more in the applied physics vein. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I was focusing on things that I felt could really make an impact in people's lives. And at the same time, I started working on this technology alongside my father because it was something that had made a big impact in my life. You know, I probably wouldn't have been able to achieve as much as I've been able to achieve in my life if I hadn't had, you know, the early prototypes of this device in my room because, you know, when you have those constant, you know, problems with astronautics, it becomes quite debilitating and it, it takes a lot of your focus and energy and attention away from from doing things to just your own you know physical state right yeah. so um and you know over the over the years actually i ended up leaving uh i went back from my phd at stanford but i ended up leaving the program because you know i was just so compelled by what we had developed in the technology mm-hmm. and how many you know just thinking about there's over a billion people around the world who suffer from some form of chronic respiratory disease and knowing the impact this had on me, I just thought, well, if I want to make an impact, I want you know to make people's lives better. What better technology than this that's helped me? Yeah. So, so that's sort of um, you know why I decided to leave the program and uh, and focus on this uh, about five five you know four and a half five years ago. Yeah. Um, so, and, it, and just go full time doing this. Yeah, it's a it's a great story. There's so much to follow up on here. But to start with, I just want to underscore this very common theme that entrepreneurial opportunities often come from pain points that you have personal experience with, but they almost always are in a context, uh, sort of a, a perspective or a lens through which the entrepreneur sees the problem. So in this case, your father had a particular skill set. And that skill set, he saw the application of that skill set to this problem, and that's really the origin story. So it's a it's a very common uh, pattern or theme. I want to ask you. I, I my father was also a a researcher, professor, and crazy inventor, and um, and and yet I can't really imagine working with my father on some of those inventions. So I, yeah. I'm wondering I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what it's like to work on something that your father had really devoted his life to or much of his life to. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. I mean, I can't deny that uh, that there's some moments early on where, you know, where when, when I had just started on it, um, you know, where it's like, oh, I'm going to work with my father now. I mean, I, I did uh, – in my undergrad, I did – He's a mechan- he's, he's a mechanical engineering by training, and that's mm-hmm. where um, he taught at University of Florida. I did my undergrad there, and uh, and I did electrical engineering. Uh, you know, part of me wonders if I might have chosen mechanical if not for uh, if not for the fact that my father sure. was there. But 
But, you know, what happens is that, you know, as you grow older, your relationship kind of changes. And I really credit my father for one thing, which is that, and this is something that we even incorporate in the values of the company, is that he did, didn't have an ego around, um, you know, what skill set he had versus what skill set I had, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, when it came to actually productizing this or building the company, he was in many ways more than happy to defer to, you know, normally a father-son relationship is, okay, you listen to what dad says. Right. But he was more than happy to defer because he didn't have an ego issue around, okay, I know best, right? Yeah. And, you know, that actually became has become enshrined as one of our values as a company at Molecule. You know, check your ego at the door is is one of our company values. And it's just because we've seen both, you know, the negative side of that, of where individual egos can come in between um, great work being done. And then we've seen the positive about, okay, if you can put that aside and everybody can just be focused on how do we achieve this goal, then uh, then you can be really, really well aligned. And that's what's enabled us to start from kind of an initial origin of like my father and then my sister, who I also co-founded with uh, to a company where we're, uh, you know, 130 people today. Yeah. Well, tell us a little, give us a few of the key milestones along the way. So you, you had a, you had a concept, you had a, you had a, a, a clear problem, you had a, a technological approach. Sounds like you had a, some kind of prototype at the initial opportunity. What did you do mm-hmm. next? Did Were you focused on market validation? Were you focused on the technology? Where did you really focus uh, in validating the opportunity? Well, there were there were a couple of different points, right? One was, um, you know, it's one thing to have a lab technology. It's another thing to have a product, right? Mm-hmm. So we knew that there was going to be a process of uh, of going from one stage to the next. And we knew that there are going to be, have to be a bunch of compromises that are made during that. And, you know, if you just look at the technology and, you you know, we didn't have to do a ton of market validation in the sense that, you know, just just looking here in the U.S., we have 80 million allergy sufferers, 25 million asthma sufferers. These people, you know, people like me are we're spending, uh, you know, tons of dollars just on treating our symptoms, mm-hmm. a device that can promise to, you know, to me, to potentially help with that is much welcomed in that market. And you know, we had we had early indications of people. I don't know how they got our phone numbers because we were in stealth and there's no public anything about right. the company. Um, but people were, would call us to say like, "Hey, I have a kid. I have this problem. Like, is there a way I can get a prototype from you?" Right. And then we saw that you know, in our first beta test with the prototypes was are there ways so we we were seeing that market pull already happening so we're less concerned about sort of validating the market it was more about how do we maintain that core value to the customer Mm -hmm. throughout this productizing process and how do we make sure that we're making all the trade-offs necessary so that core value is conveyed and so one thing that we did that was pretty i think pretty unique was um, we initially started out with a beta test with customers Mm-hmm. And we grew that into a clinical trial that we actually use as a gating factor through all of the gates of manufacturing our hardware products. So, you know, if we had a, a validation run with a manufacturer, those devices would come back and then we would put them into our, our trial and we'd see, okay, well, how, you know, how 
how is this relieving symptoms of people? Hmm. And uh, and once that met that internal bar, we felt okay, yes, we made the right trade off. Let's go to the next phase. Wow! But so you're using was, you're literally using the experience of a customer group of human subjects as mm-hmm. an indicator of the quality of the product. Absolutely. Well, you know, we have our own quality, internal quality tests yeah. to make sure everything's safe. But the efficacy, you know, we felt yeah. we weren't comfortable until ultimately we could see the efficacy amongst customers, right? Yeah. And we could hear the stories. I mean, uh, I'll be honest, until, I mean, I knew the, the impact that it had on me, but until we started testing this with customers out there in the world, it, it, even though we had the, the family background and we had lived the problem, we didn't realize how impactful, how emotional these stories would be, how deep of an impact this has on people's lives until we started hearing back from people. Yeah. You know, um, we have, we have one, uh, we have one beta tester who, who shared her story, um, Katrina Clower. She's a, a, a mom from Wisconsin and, uh, and you know she had she has asthma herself, but she also has a son who has asthma, and uh, and this is where kind of it's it's it hit home for me, because you know I sort of realized what my father was going through when I was a kid that prompted him to start doing all of this, but she talked about you know the feeling of of seeing her son sort of um, not just be able to sleep through the night and you know wake up with energy, but like his personality change and him you know, running around and being full of energy and being excited to play with other kids as opposed to scared because of the asthma symptoms that might come up. Um, that was incredibly powerful for me to yeah. hear personally. Yeah, super and, cool. Yeah, and that's sort of what told us. That's what, you know, That's where the focus has just been. It's been about how do we make sure we know that the product is providing this value? And, uh, and if we're providing that value, everything else will follow, right? Yeah. So we just have a couple of minutes left, but I want to, I want to ask a, a question about developing the opportunity or developing the product. You mm-hmm. said your training was in machine learning, AI, more, more computation. And, mm-hmm. and this is, this is a mechanical device. No question about it. Mm-hmm. Electromechanical device. Uh, and a complex one and a challenging one and one that you have to produce at, at scale eventually. So how did you actually go about to productizing this? What kinds of skills and resources did you need and how did you get them? Well, I mean, the great thing about uh, about this journey is you don't have to do it alone, right? So, um, so you know, while I learned a lot of skills along the way, um, we brought on, you know, and I think this is the real key to to our success is we brought on a really great team of people. So early on, we brought on, um, you know, uh, our, our VP, current VP of product and design, uh, Peter Rurin-Chakala, and then our VP of hardware engineering, uh, David Sanabria. Um, you know, Peter has an amazing background in industrial design, and he handled that, pro- that industrial design process. But he also understands manufacturing. And, you know, the, the, the same with Dave. Dave came on and really focused on solving some of those really difficult uh, engineering problems. In fact, um, at the time, we were talking to a number of different design consulting firms here in Silicon Valley, and there was a pro- particular mechanical problem that they had all told us unanimously was, was quite difficult. And, uh, and, you know, Dave flew over just to get an idea of what it would be like to work with us. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it was before he was hired, and uh, and you know, in a day, he showed us three or four different solutions about how you could solve that problem. And so that was when we knew, okay, we've got somebody uh, yeah. special here. Um, but but let me delete. I'm just going to interrupt you for a second because I do want to underscore sure. this point. But but we're also running short of time. So, but that's this critical decision of do you work with a design firm and outsource that, or do you bring it in in house? And either of those approaches is really expensive. So so you must have raised significant amount of capital, and then you made the choice to do it in house. Did I get that right? Uh, so we raised actually. Quite a, you know, we raised 3.25 million, and that's what mm-hmm. we ended up shipping the product on. Wow! So we took a really high. We took a hybrid approach. Yeah. We brought in some expertise in house, and we worked with um, we worked with an actual ODM as yep. opposed to. So we had our technology piece that we built ourselves, and then we worked with the original design manufacturer, meaning that we had the contract manufacturer who was going to be building our product. We had them do handle a lot of the detailed design. And uh, and what that did was that saved us. Normally, you go to you know uh, a design house, they give you something, then you go to a manufacturer, you go through a bunch of DFM cycles. Mm-hmm. We tried to skip as much of that as possible, mm-hmm. um, and and be really really lean uh, because you know we had seen a lot of hardware companies, especially at that time in 2015, raise a lot of money yeah. and not get anywhere. Yeah, so, and that was a company that was an ODM, a, a contract manufacturer and design house in in southern China. Is that where you did it? Uh, well, we actually initially worked with Foxconn. So, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, quite a quite a bit of capability there. Yeah. Uh, wow, that's impressive that you could get them their attention uh, in 2015. But that that's well, a testament. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just a testament to you know, air quality in Asia is is a huge challenge. Yeah. And it's foremost on people's minds and health. And when you have something that's transformative, that can really um, that can really deal with this. Even a manufacturer like Foxconn can see how massive that market potential yeah. is and how you know consumers really are going to be demanding more and more of it in the future. Yeah. All right, Dilip. Well, fascinating story and a great tie-in of your personal life, your family, and, and the vision. So it's a fascinating story. And thanks for the lecture on or the, the tutorial on, uh, on pollutants and for making the time to join us today. Of course. It was a pleasure to be on. And uh, thanks for having me, Paul. All right. For more information, go to Molecule.com. That's M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E.com. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 